0: Uh, Good evening, Uh, my name is Francesco Caselli. I'm a professor here at the LSE's Economics Department and I am very happy to be uh, the chair tonight for the talk and the Q&A. Okay, so if I were to list all of tonight's speakers uh, past achievements and uh, current high-profile roles, I would have to take the whole time that we have uh, for the evening. Um, I would have to start by reviewing uh, his major scientific contributions Uh, to international economics and economic growth uh, which made him an academic superstar at an age where most other economists are struggling to finish their phd Um, i would have to list uh, the literally hundreds of countries whose governments he has advised uh, most famously but certainly not limited to uh, latin american countries which uh, he has helped defeat hyperinflation uh, and deal with the debt crisis as well as poland russia and other formerly socialist economies which he has helped uh, transition to the market system. I would then have to discuss the immense influence uh, he has had with his books, uh, his articles, his media appearances, on truly shaping uh, global public opinion on issues such as poverty and underdevelopment, uh, climate change, and many others. And then, of course, I would have to List his many current uh, role as advisor to uh, major global players, beginning with the UN Secretary General, of course, uh, and also founder, director, advocate uh, for more policy initiatives than uh, most of us may even conceive to be involved in a lifetime. But all of that you can read in Wikipedia. Uh, So let me just say something that um, maybe you won't read in Wikipedia. Uh, So there is no way... (laughs) There is no way uh, that Jeff remembers this, but um, when I was in graduate school I took one of his courses. Now I can't say he could be entirely relied to show up for class every week, Uh, uh, but uh, you know he was spending a lot of time in Moscow at the time and we understood he had uh, bigger fish to fry. But when he did show up, what a treat. Um, The course was about economic development, uh, but it was unlike uh, any other course we had taken uh, in our PhD in the Harvard program. And this is because the course weaved together a seamless tapestry of rigorous economic reasoning together with a vast and varied array of uh, historical examples, references to the historical economic thought, and of course a great awareness always of the role of politics. Now, of course, we were aware, and we were used to, the rigorous economics, but for, us, for most of us, the way that it was mixed with history, politics, economic thought, was absolutely new, and I am sure it had an enduring influence, not only on myself, but on everyone taking that class. And beyond that, we were all borne away by the effortlessness, uh, with which, without any apparent reference to written notes, Uh, he seemed to be able to reach into a vast store of knowledge and scholarship to craft his arguments. So it is that depth of knowledge and scholarship, which I so admired then, that makes me look forward to hearing what Jeff has to say about one of the greatest global challenges we face, namely the great increase in inequality brought about by technical change. A challenge that is as much political as it is economic, and that cries out for the kind of global solution that Jeff has so effectively advocated for in the past in relation to other challenges such as global poverty and global warming. Uh, please welcome Jeffy Sachs to the LSE.
1: That was certainly the most charming way to say I missed a lot of classes. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And so proud to have had you as a student and to see all the wonderful things you do. And I love this uh, place, as you know. this is, I always say when I'm standing right here, it is my favorite place in the world to give a talk, and that's because of you and the vitality of LSE and especially the students in incredible uh, energy and diversity and interest and passion for what you're doing so I always feel it here uh, and it's always a privilege to, uh, to be together with you. I'm actually going to talk about um, things that I think on the whole are relatively positive today which is not my normal uh, <laughs> role here. Uh, when I gave the Robbins lectures earlier this year it was uh, bemoaning all our failures to be decent, uh, and to uh, use uh, moral reasoning uh, both in our field and in our societies. And I can't say anything has gotten better on that score. They could have listened to the lectures, and Mr. Trump might have resigned or something, and we might have uh, been on for uh, something, something better, but it hasn't quite worked out that way yet. Um, but today I want to talk about technological advance, which I really believe in. Of course, it poses some very uh, big issues, and they're not all positive by any means. I'm only going to touch on some of the more immediate and less complicated and, in a way, uh, less abstract parts of the story about what smart machines could mean for us. I will not get to singularity uh, except uh, in a maybe a singular sentence or two, uh, so I won't talk about superintelligence and runaway, uh, runaway intelligence and so forth. I will try to make some sense of what it means to have this wave of increasingly powerful machines, but in the real time of uh, our generation and probably uh, the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Beyond that, uh, I I won't venture. I will uh, start almost start by citing Keynes, and he ventured to look ahead 100 years in his wonderful and always wonderful to read and reread essay on the economic possibilities of our grandchildren, uh, which I read for... Fiftieth time last night again, Uh, I had to quote everything to my wife, so I basically read it out loud to her Uh, because it's so beautiful. Who writes like that? Uh, It's uh, just marvelous. But he looked ahead and raised a lot of the questions that uh, I'll be talking about this evening, and got a lot right, even though it's often said he didn't quite get it right. I think he did get it uh, basically right, Um, and. He saw that the progress of technology would change how we live in subtle and complicated ways, but basically by freeing us up from drudgery. Uh, And uh, in fact, I think there's a lot of truth in that, though a lot of the world and a lot of the world that I deal with day to day for the UN and as part of what were the Millennium Development Goals, and the Sustainable Development Goals are about people stuck in the worst kind of drudgery. So I don't want to be misunderstood to be generalizing across a world that's incredibly uh, diverse and with a tremendous amount of real economic, physical pain uh, every day. But I will be talking about what this leading edge of technological change, The smart machines, the ever smarter machines might mean for us uh, macroeconomically. So I will start with Keynes, I'll read you something. My wife had to hear the whole essay, you'll only hear a small part of it. Uh, What can we reasonably expect the level of our economic life to be a hundred years hence? He was writing in 1930. And part of the genius is he was writing in the depths of the Great Depression. So this optimistic piece in the depths of the Great Depression is an added measure of uh, really the perspicacity of, uh, of, of this genius. What are the economic possibilities for our grandchildren? We are being afflicted with a new disease of which some readers may not yet have heard the name, but of which they will hear a great deal in the years to come, namely technological unemployment. We hear about this every day now, right? But he wrote about this uh, uh, 87 years ago. This means unemployment due to our discovery of means of economizing the use of labor, outrunning the pace at which we can find new uses for labor. But this is only a temporary phase of maladjustment. I'm skipping, uh, mind you. Uh, All this means in the long run that mankind is solving its economic problem. I would predict that the standard of life in progressive countries 100 years hence will be between four and eight times as high as it is today, that is by 2030. There would be nothing surprising in this, even in the light of our present knowledge. It would not be foolish to contemplate the possibility of a far greater progress still. I draw the conclusion that assuming no important wars and no important increase in population, now when he wrote the population was 2 billion, uh, it reached 2 billion actually that year is the official estimate, uh, 1930, we're at 7.5 billion. So whether that's an important increase or not is uh, to be debated, but uh, it's fairly important. But he says, uh, assuming no important wars, no important increase of population, the economic problem may be solved, or at least within sight of solution within 100 years. This means that the economic problem is not, if we look into the future, the permanent problem of the human race. The love of money as a possession, as distinguished from the love of money as a means to the enjoyments and reality of life, will be recognized for what it is, a somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities which one hands over with a shutter to the specialists in mental disease or else you become president of the United States. Uh, Something like that. So what happened? Uh, Keynes uh, wrote at that moment the GDP per capita in real terms 2009 inflation-adjusted dollars was five thousand dollars per person and in 2016 uh, we reached uh, in the United States on on that metric, uh, thirty-five thousand dollars per person in the United States. So it was a seven-time increase. And if we just extrapolate to 2030, Keynes is going to be right on the mark of an eight-time increase from uh, 1930 to 2030. Not bad. Uh, so that's a good starting point. Uh, we have had indeed sustained technological progress, and that has changed life, and other than the, and from the point of view actually of what Keynes called the economic problem of poverty as being absolute deprivation in our societies, that has largely been eliminated in the high-income world which is about 1.2 billion of the seven and a half billion people on the planet. There is still a lot of relative poverty and there is some absolute poverty as well so it's not zero. But the kind of poverty that Keynes was referring to as the economic problem, staying alive with adequate food, safe water and so forth, if in the high-income world people lack that, that's a profound political failure, not an economic failure. And such failures are very much evident in my country, which is the most unequal of any high-income country. It's got a ghastly political disorder, uh, which is uh, obvious now, but really isn't just due to the uh, unstable person in the White House, it reflects an ongoing problem that we've had for decades in the United States of understanding the difference between uh, decency and what we call libertarianism which is not decency Um, and uh, but the economic problem is, is substantially solved and what people do for a living and how we live of course has been utterly transformed and I think in one way that is a bit obvious but we should make it really obvious and really understood. So this is a rough breakdown of the difference of occupations in 1900 now, the beginning of the 20th century and today in the United States. Agriculture workers were 36 percent of the US labor force in 1900 based on the 12th census. Today, less than 1% of the labor force. So the most fundamental transformation in America and indeed in all of the high income world sometime in the last two centuries was moving from rural to urban life and moving from agriculture to uh, basically urban occupations, now overwhelmingly service occupations. And the biggest difference between low-income countries and high-income countries is that in low-income countries, half the population is still working in rural areas in agriculture-related activities and typically in smallholder farms and most importantly, in arduous labor. Poor people work very hard. Rich people do not work very hard. Arguably, rich people don't work at all. Uh, I have a running discussion with my wife of whether what I do is work. I say no, she says yes. Uh, That's because I'm a little preoccupied, but I don't feel like it's work. I feel like it's coffee shops, talking to interesting people, uh, having a chance to share an evening here, but I would not regard this as work in the sense that it used to be regarded as work. I get paid for it somehow for a while longer, although I will describe the robot that will take my job soon, I expect. Um, But uh, poor people work very hard, exhausting physical work. And in 1900, a third of the population was in agriculture and mostly in hard physical labor about 24% according to the census of 1900 were in production occupations in some kind of manufacturing or construction activities. That's also physically arduous. You're lifting heavy things, you're near furnaces, uh, you're uh, in uh, the middle of chemical processes, uh, mining, uh, of course, uh, which is deadly. especially uh, in those years. Today it's about 14% depending on where you draw the line occupationally, but I would say about 14% of the American workforce is in mining, construction, and manufacturing. But a lot of those jobs, mind you, are white collar jobs. A lot of them are not physically arduous jobs at all, so you wouldn't say that that's all hard physical labor, though almost all of this was hard physical labor. Trade, wholesale, retail, transport, warehousing, administration was about 16% of the population in uh, 1900, 28% today. Other services, which in 1900 were household servants uh, and personal services, now... Uh, entertainment, leisure, restaurants, accommodations would be this category. Roughly the same proportion of the population. And the other huge difference is professional activity and this broadly means uh, here even not all uh, bachelor's degrees would fall into this category. But certainly all masters and higher degrees, uh, almost all of them would fall into professional category by the U.S. occupation category now. And that was about 4% of the population in 1900 and 39% of the population today. So the great transformation was from agriculture to professional work and the nature of professional work is almost defined by no physical hard activities. Uh, It's uh, office work or coffee shop work or work from home uh, or work anywhere you happen to be increasingly. Um, So my estimate is based on these kinds of data and other data that we went from about 70% of the population in manual labor at the beginning of the 20th century to under 20% today. Maybe it's arguable 10% if one did a pretty refined separation within uh, these occupational classes. That is an enormous improvement of well-being it may be the most significant improvement of well-being. People don't like hard physical labor. They do what they can to avoid it. I do. I would say you do also. That's why you're here. Uh, maybe that's not the only reason you're here, but it's a good way to also satisfy that desire. And. If I would guess why it is that we find in uh, the studies uh, that uh, Professor Laird and Professor Heliwell and I uh, help to either write or edit each year in the World Happiness Report why it is that low-income countries score low on happiness and high-income countries score high on happiness, my guess is that a tremendous amount of it has to do with the arduousness of life, and that development is a real thing. It's not just a relativity, and it's not uh, just a arbitrariness or getting hooked on new devices. It is the difference of backbreaking work day in day out, and on the margin of many many dangers, physical dangers. The water's not safe. The drought comes. The uh, mosquito carries malaria. Whereas in high income world we don't face any of those problems of extreme poverty. So this is the sense, I think, in which Keynes is right and was literally right. We've almost done with the backbreaking work that was the toil of humanity in the high-income world. And in a lot of the upper-middle-income world, and in perhaps half of the lower middle income world and perhaps a third of the low income world rough numbers and that's why development I think is so attractive and uh, and and compelling politically and at a personal level is the hardship and the drudgery that goes along with the work have spent the last 15 years visiting African villages as part of my work for the UN it's unbelievable to me how hard people work and how physically demanding it is and how old women are working in the field bent over all day and mothers are carrying 10 or 20 kilograms of water in jerry cans kilometers each day and doing things that uh, you would, or I would do, maybe, I I wouldn't do it, but you might do it in a workout in a gym for a few minutes, but that's the daily life every day. So, to my mind, that's what development is really about and what Keynes was pointing out as what technological advance would make possible and why I believe in economic growth because I think it really improves dramatically the quality of life. Now, Cain said, well, uh, we would face the problem of unemployment or we're temporarily facing it till we readjust to new conditions. And the usual argument that the economics profession gives is a little bit different. They say the idea that technological advance will eliminate jobs is the lump of labor fallacy. The idea that there's a fixed number of jobs, and if a certain amount of those jobs go to machines, then there won't be enough for the rest, and that's a basic fallacy. And we teach supply and demand, and we show that the equilibrium can uh, be at... uh, the uh, original employment level of the labor supply curve is uh, inelastic, and, and that the technological advance can raise the real wage, and m- many arguments you learned early on that uh, the idea that machines will somehow reduce work is wrong. And the arguments now about machines that I am discussing this evening by most mainstream. Macroeconomics says there'll be new jobs if the old jobs go away there there will be new jobs there always have been new jobs after all and why should this time be any different and it's true buggy whip manufacturers went out of business but there was plenty to make for the new automobile industry and we'll find new jobs I think that's half wrong my view is Jobs have gone down a lot. Employment has gone down a lot. And for the good. Because not only do we not like arduous work, we like leisure. We like not being at work. Whether the not being at work is retirement or this wonderful life of students, how could it get better, right? I won't go into that more, but uh, it's basically true. Uh, or long vacation times. We actually don't like to work all the time. And, of course, that's subject to what is work because I don't feel I work very much, period, in terms of the traditional work because I never break a sweat at work. Uh, I don't. It's not part of my work uh, assignment, uh, if it is. Um, So, I believe that part of the transformation has been a dramatic decline of work per person, not just a change of the work structure, and generally for the good. So I think we're well along the way that Keynes envisaged for us, even though it's usually Uh, argue that Keynes got it wrong in this regard that when he said that our big problem would be figuring out what to do it's true we don't feel like we lack the what to do but I would say that what has happened over time is that we have increasingly incorporated non-work into our lives in very serious important and positive ways one is a very extended adolescence I'm 62 and I haven't left school yet uh, so uh, I view that as part of uh, this great opportunity not to have had to weed in the fields. Very, very lucky uh, from my narrow point of view. We have long student lives. Uh, we have uh, time to explore the world. We have retirement, which was barely an idea other than for the uh, super upper class at the beginning of the 20th century, who stayed alive long enough anyway, and who could afford not to work as long as uh, you were living in order to stay alive. So uh, until people became disabled and unable to work, they generally worked. So it's interesting to try roughly to make an idea of uh, what uh, is actually happening in terms of work effort, and it goes something like this. The 2015 data are from the time use studies that are collected every year from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And the 1900 is my guess, uh, because there are no time studies that I know of systematically, but there's a lot of anecdotal uh, discussion that I think makes it not wrong. And the basic point is this, in 1900 Still more than half the population in the United States lived in rural areas, uh, in farms or nearby farms, and women worked very hard typically in home production, men very often in home production as well on the farm, Uh, but everybody was working all day. Chores were round the clock from very early in the morning till late at night. The usual perception is that the work hours themselves were about 10 hours every day and that was roughly six days a week uh, aside from church day uh, and uh, that this was both the adults in the family and one big difference is, was the kids over over five also did chores and certainly over ten were working uh, by and large unless they were of a small proportion that uh, were able to continue in school. And people worked on weekends, the weekend, the true weekend was going to church on Sunday, uh, but there were plenty of work hours on both Saturday and Sunday. And the working week was basically around the year. The idea of an organized paid vacation didn't exist for most people. Maybe you went to visit somebody, your family, you could take a few days uh, off or swap uh, work, but basically it was round the year work. So if you take the assumptions that I've made which admittedly are a little bit drawn out of uh, uh, not quite thin air but without the precision of uh, detailed surveys, that leads to about 7.8 working hours on average per day, which sounds to me about right. That's averaged over a seven day work week. People worked Basically, adults worked basically around the clock. If you look at the 2015 data on time use, on a Monday through Friday on any given work week, a little over half of the adults are working. And about half are not working. What are they doing? Well, they are either uh, in retirement or they're at school or uh, they're in sick leave, or they're on vacation, or something else. But in the survey, it's only a little bit over half that are working. Of those who work on the weekdays, the average working hours are about eight hours a day. So we still have an eight-hour workday in the United States if you're at work. But only about half the adults are working at any given day. On the weekend, about uh, 23%. of adults are working on a Saturday or a Sunday and if they're working the work hours are 5.6 hours. The total year-round work uh, is on average about 48 and a half weeks with about uh, with the rest uh, three and a half weeks either the paid holidays or the official holidays or the paid vacation time. If you make those calculations. This is what the survey showed this year, that the average working time was 3 hours 12 minutes a day for an adult in the United States. That's good. So the average adult on an an average day works 3 hours and .2 or 12 minutes, 3 hours 12 minutes of work per day. That's quite an accomplishment for an economy. To have an economy that in current dollar terms is sixty thousand dollars per person and it's based on average work of three hours a day. How close Keynes was to getting this right? Work is really going out of fashion and on average work has declined from almost eight hours a day to uh, uh, a little more than, uh, a little more than uh, three hours a day, and that's the trend that I believe we're basically on. So the trend is work is going out of style, and that's good. And I would say, and I could end my talk now, that nothing that Keynes said in one thousand, nine hundred and thirty is really different for us now. The same basic principles of technological progress continue and the same tendency of that to lead to uh, a diminishing of physical work which will almost disappear, there will be no miners left uh, at all. I talked to a farmer recently who said that he still likes to ride his tractor, Uh, it drives itself on the farm but he sits looking backwards because he finds it relaxing to see where the tractor has been. Um, He doesn't, he hardly moves. He can read a book. He can do whatever he wants. It's all precision agriculture. He's using GPS. He's not using GPS. The tractor's using GPS and very sophisticated soil sampling to know where to put the precise mixes of fertilizer on the soil. And he is not out there doing that at all. Uh, it's all basically done by machine on huge farms, highly productive, and uh, without, uh, also without uh, breaking a sweat. So the basic logic, if we don't do terrible things to ourselves or if Donald Trump doesn't do terrible things to us, uh, there's really no reason to believe that things will be much different in terms of the ongoing trends including the fact that there's no principal reason, but it's subject to a lot of caveats, which is what I spend most of my time on, that everybody can't enjoy this as well. There's no reason that it can't be true for all. There's no boundary condition for the world that the rich are able to enjoy this because the poor continue to... uh, suffer the difficulties of arduous labor. We are not rich because Africa is poor. We don't do much to help Africa. That's a different matter. We helped to make Africa poor in certain ways uh, during uh, history, uh, a lot of uh, historical experience with a lot of brutality uh, and uh, a lot of harm and legacy. But the point is, and even with all of the ecological crises uh, that we face which are very dire and very real that's also not a boundary condition for this kind of progress worldwide it's just that we have to do certain things for example not use when we use electricity for all these smart machines they have to come from wind and solar power not from coal-fired power plants that's the kind of change that needs to be made not more fundamental than that we have to get our technologies smart so that we don't destroy the planet as we scale these implications but there's no evident barrier in terms of being able to see this progress uh... in a much more general way and we can see in shorter periods of time these trends continuing this way working hours continue to decline uh, Actually, uh, France uh, has had a decline of uh, work of 20 weeks at 40-hour work weeks from 1950 to 2016. And uh, Sweden, a decline of uh, 10 weeks per year of work. The United States still uh, is working uh, 1,700 hours uh, per year. It's had a smaller decline, and that's generally poor people and I'll come back to that difference in the US there is not one day of guaranteed paid vacation for anybody uh, at, because of, by law people have it by private contract but unlike all the rest of the high income world the US has no legal right to vacation time that's cause we're cruel we're rich but very cruel One confusion which please never make in your life is to confuse Ayn Rand with being a philosopher, okay? She's a lousy novelist, a nasty woman, she was, and not a philosopher. But unfortunately, uh, we have politicians that don't know the difference. Okay. So, let me turn to what is different. We are living in a different kind of revolution from the one that Keynes talked about. Keynes's revolution, not that it's in contradistinction, he just assumed good things would come along. That was his basic principle. His basic principle was that we were living in an age of endogenous growth, and without saying a word, actually, in the essay of what that growth would be constituted of, He just said that compound growth of technological progress would continue. It turns out that the kind of progress that happened was a revolution that started just a few years after he wrote the essay. I would say that it was a revolution that was invented by one of the greatest geniuses of modern times and that's Alan Turing, who uh, almost out of his head in 1936 invented the modern world. not all of it but enough of it to uh, make a a startling uh, revolution so a good concept for us is general purpose technologies which we study in in development and the idea is that these are profound technological advances that have pervasive effects across all sectors of the economy and the greatest of Probably the most important invention of modern history because it led to the whole breakthrough to modern economic growth was the steam engine. That is a quintessential general purpose technology, mobilizing fossil energy for motive force. What an incredible breakthrough Newcomen and Watt made possible. And I would say that that was the biggest game changer in, uh, in modern history, uh, making uh, that invention available. Steam was followed by electricity, the internal combustion engine, uh, change of industrial practices, sometimes called uh, Fordism or Taylorism, sometimes derided as Fordism or Taylorism, but I would say uh, brilliantly implemented as Fordism or Taylorism, meaning <coughs> making systematic workflow in the factory and inventing a moving assembly line for example and using time and motion studies to understand how to make workflow uh, accelerate considerably. Of course there are abuses but it's a great invention that raised living standards phenomenally and it was an invention of, of process and I will put the information revolution as on par with these as big what do I mean by the information revolution basically the idea that information can be digitized as zeros and ones stored electronically and used for computation for communication uh, and uh, for um, all else uh, in in those categories and these general-purpose technologies utterly transform societies. So in Keynes's time, it was the physical machine age and electrification of factory production, mass production, moving assembly lines that had led to 40 or 50 years of continuing endogenous growth. Starting in the 1930s, and I'll just recall the history in a moment, It was the beginning of the digital age, it took decades for the digital age to really come upon us as a full revolution which we're in right now, but it started about 80 years ago. What do general purpose technologies do? They change everything. So they raise output, first of all, and Measurement becomes difficult often because we're measuring different things before and after these uh, changes, but they raise national output. They disrupt all production processes across all different sectors of the economy. You do things differently after they develop. They restructure labor markets fundamentally. So the kind of work that's done are changed by the kinds of machines that we use. They shift the distribution of income profoundly. And this, I think, for all of us that have studied uh, and all of us have studied the solo growth model uh, and uh, Caldor's stylized facts about the economy, a little bit got spoiled uh, in thinking that there's basically something like a steady state growth process. But there's nothing like a steady state growth process in general and hasn't and there hasn't been for the last two centuries because all of these changes have been incredibly disruptive for an accidental reason certain things looked stable but underneath the stability was turmoil and that's i'm going to show that uh, in just a moment and of course they change human settlements and demography as well where people live how they live and how the families are structured so I'll make a few points. First, a lot of the progress technologically is machine substituting for labor. And that both changes jobs and reduces total work effort in the economy. So some of the gains are taken as leisure, some of the gains are taken as increased real wages in a different mix of occupations. That's been going on well before the digital revolution. We've had smart machines since uh, the smart machines of of, uh, James Watt. Not smart in exactly the same way, not digital, but we've been substituting for human labor pretty much continuously and especially with the decline of agriculture which came largely from mechanization. So machines in agriculture substituted for physical labor, threw a lot of people out of work, created a lot of turmoil, and eventually created a new economy with a different labor market. The information revolution is distinct in that it is science-based, which, of course, in all of our debates about development, we know that science has played a role, but not a decisive role, in a lot of the technologies of the 19th century, though increasingly so of course, from Watt leading and thermodynamics coming afterwards to Faraday leading and the electrodynamo coming afterwards. So science became more and more of a base for technological change. But the information revolution is entirely science-based. There was no way to have this kind of revolution but for tremendous advances in solid-state physics and in mathematical sciences which came to be called information sciences and and computer sciences. So the information revolution is fully science-based and it's dramatically raised the returns to R&D on a sustained basis of at least the last 60 years. And it is key for understanding where that new professional class came from because most of us in that professional class are Uh, Living on the basis of that technological and working on the basis of that technological revolution. The nature of the revolution, to an important extent, is automation. It's not the only way that the revolution works, but replacing jobs is a very big and intrinsic part of this revolution. Being able to do things that could not be done before is another part. But part of it is absolutely automation. Automation. But the logic of automation works fairly systematically that what can first be automated is physical labor and repetitive tasks. And the more one moves to cognitive and non-repetitive tasks, the harder it is and the smarter the machines have to be. But they're coming for us, no doubt. And no doubt the best economists in 25 years will be Watson's children. So, IBM Deep Economics will review all of the journals instantaneously, whereas I can read three of them per week. Uh, Whereas, uh, we'll have uh, natural language uh, scanning by the machines for a thousand journals as on a routine basis I don't know who's gonna write the article other robots uh, (laughs) what what they're reading so uh, I'll come back to that okay so there's a a logical sequence of the automation process there is an increasing shift of national income from labor to capital and that capital includes both physical capital and software uh, largely intellectual property And wages are stagnant or declining for things we would call basic labor because they are substituted away increasingly and there are not alternatives. So this is absolutely a case where not all boats are lifted by the rising tide. That's pretty fundamental in economic history. We could have learned it from Engels uh, in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, The factory... Life did not raise the living standards, maybe even on average, but certainly not uniformly uh, in early industrial England of the first half of the 19th century either. And we're going to need new approaches. So I'm going to talk about new training, income redistribution, shared leisure, and promotion of human-machine complementarities. What can we do to uh, keep our role? in the story. We will always be better humans than the computers, so we need to understand better what that means. We will not be better chess players, we will not be better go players, we will not be better miners, we will not be better economists, but we'll be better at being human. That will be our basic comparative advantage. Uh, But what does it actually mean is a big question. So what has this information revolution been I think it's important to understand it and I want to emphasize a few highlights of it. It started with Alan Turing uh, and uh, John von Neumann. It started conceptually. uh, The concept that one could create uh, a digital world and a uh, general computation possibility. It advanced incredibly during World War II and that was the great breakthrough period because it turned out World War II was heavily an information fought war. It took uh, the Enigma machine and Alan Turing's genius for that, the inventions of radar and then using radar in automatic servo mechanisms to point guns in the right direction, it created feedback processes that are basically, they were to some extent analog processes, but they involved uh, communications, computation, uh, and uh, physical uh, machines to create anti-aircraft and uh, 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 anti-V1, anti-missile devices by 1944. And that's where the advances took a a, a huge jump. And to make radar, one had to study semiconductors because semiconductors were vital for uh, developing radar and it was the semiconductor science that then allowed Shockley and Bardeen and colleagues at uh, Bell Labs in 1947 to invent the transistor and that became the basis for the next steps. I'm going to read you something by Franklin Roosevelt, our greatest president, so I'll talk about the greatest and our worst. Uh, um, So we have bookends uh, right now, but the head of science for the United States during World War II for the military effort was a man named Vannevar Bush who was an MIT professor and a visionary. And towards the end of the war, Roosevelt asked, what do we do? We're coming to the end of the war. How can we use science for civilian life? And this became, in my view, the basis for the U.S. economic development from then till now. Now we're breaking it to pieces because the stupidity and vileness and greed of our political system has no idea how we got to where we got. But for decades, the U.S. was based on scientific-led economic development, largely the digital revolution. That was the great fuel of economic development of the United States for many decades. Norbert Wiener, you know the name, uh, invented the phrase or the word cybernetics uh, and the concept of man-machine interactions. Herbert Simon, who I regard as one of the greatest economists uh, of the second half of the 20th century, uh, absolutely uh, the most creative perhaps, who just broke free from all our traditions uh, and uh, because he was working at an engineering school and he saw the digital revolution come and he was thinking of what this means for the real world and then worked back to what it means for economics. And so he created a wholly new class of engineering economics in effect that is absolutely brilliant and scintillating to read and has nothing to do with our marginal marginalism and uh, general equilibrium, but has to do with what an engineered world will look like and what engineered systems mean and how they can function. So, Wiener and uh, Simon, uh, Herbert Simon, created a kind of science of the artificial that became the basis for conceptualizing at a more abstract uh, level what this new machine-human interaction could be. Then came Shannon with information theory and Shockley with the transistor, and this was the next incredible breakthrough because Shannon basically said you could put logical gates electronically and then quickly the vacuum tubes were substituted by the new transistors and suddenly you had a logical system that could build Turing's machine. And that was the, uh, the, the remarkable breakthrough in uh, 19, the late 1940s. And then at the end of the 1950s, Kilby & Noyce figured out that you could etch these components uh, into silicon wafers without having to assemble them with solder and wires. Uh, And the integrated circuit was developed and that gave way to, uh, eventually to microprocessors and to Moore's Law. And then it was brought downstream into the economy. Gates and Jobs made an e-economy by standardizing certain uh, aspects, uh, taking uh, work that had been done and showing how standardization could be brought to consumers. Google, uh, Page and Brin uh, made the information accessible, searchable for the public. Uh, Bezos and Ma uh, made uh, business to business uh, and business to consumer transactions possible. And the last step of this is that the machines are telling us, step aside, we'll play chess, we'll play uh, play Jeopardy, uh, and we'll also uh, translate for you and do many other uh, wonderfully smart things based on machine learning. So this is what I have in mind as uh, the underpinnings of the past 50 years and where I think we are likely to head. But let me, uh, before showing you some of the implications of this, uh, show you how great leaders can create a vision of the future. Because these things don't just happen, they need visionaries. And the greatest president we ever had in the United States was Franklin Roosevelt. I think by far. and many many things he did. Uh, First to create a decent society, second to win a very uh, help win a very hard war by mobilizing the United States to do that Uh, but one of the lesser known things that he one of the lesser known things that he did that is really important is that he envisioned the role of science in American civilian life in a new way. This is not to be taken for granted because the idea that you have national science foundations, at least not in my country, that you have national science foundations, national institutes of health, uh, national laboratories, uh, federal funding for universities, federal funding for research, federal funding for students, in the United States had to be invented almost whole cloth from before World War II to afterward. So in 1944, he wrote Maybe Vannevar Bush wrote it for him, but he sent a letter to Vannevar Bush, who was his scientific advisor in the war, asking four questions. What can be done consistent with military security and with prior approval of military authorities to make known to the world as soon as possible the contributions which have been made during our war effort to scientific knowledge? What an incredible idea, by the way. How many leaders would say that? Normally, the leaders would say, what can you do to ensure secrecy after the war so that we can maintain our preeminence? But the first question is, how do you get this out to the public for the world? Second, with particular reference to the war of science against disease, what can be done now to organize a program for continuing in the future the work which has been done in medicine and related sciences? Because a lot of work was done during World War II, for example, to invent chloroquine, which was the uh, synthetic anti-malarial based on quinine. And this was a great scientific advance. And Roosevelt also envisaged a, an attack on polio, which was his, the disease that he had been afflicted uh, with in the 1920s. And indeed, he set up a foundation, and that foundation ended up financing Jonas Salk, who made the polio vaccine. So really directed... Ideas of what technological breakthroughs can mean. Third, what can government do now and in the future to aid research activities by public and private organizations? This was not a question asked in the United States beforehand, except by a few philanthropists. The two that asked this before were Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller. And Carnegie and Rockefeller invented private large-scale philanthropy for addressing scientific challenges. Really incisive, great breakthroughs. But the first time it became public for civilian purposes was because of this question of Roosevelt to Vannevar Bush. And four, can an effective program be proposed for discovering and developing scientific talent in American youth so that the continuing future of scientific research in this country may be assured on a level level comparable to what has been done during the war. So, read this because it's worth reading. It's called Science, the Endless Frontier. And Vannevar Bush wrote a report answering these four questions. And he invents the idea of public financing for science-led growth, as clearly as can be. And he makes wonderful arguments, very straightforward that only rich kids can go to college right now, maybe it was 5% of the total uh, population at that point, but poor kids have a lot of scientific capacity, so how do we make sure that the talent in our society is not squandered? And Bush says we need massive fellowships and scholarships and we need to reach poor kids and we need to upgrade primary and secondary education and all the things that are to be taken as second nature until you have idiots in charge again, uh, and uh, what, which we're literally turning away, turning down now deliberately and we 're in the middle of an anti university backlash in the United States. What have they done for us it's uh, it 's uh, elitist it 's this and that, and i 'm not saying the universities are completely blameless in Uh, not having anticipated or responded to many of these things because universities are elitist to a certain extent. But it is unbelievably harmful to society to turn a back on knowledge. And what Vannevar Bush did create and followed through was turning secret wartime science into public science that became the digital revolution. That's where it really came from. It started with radar and wartime semiconductor research, and it was quickly turned into the public domain. So, what about this? Why is this complicated at all? Because the world is, and the economy is not in balanced growth. Because technological change leads to very significant disruptions in society because not everybody benefits by far from an advance even as wonderful as the digital revolution. And because when you think about it the digital revolution is a lot of highly trained scientists inventing machines to put a lot of less educated people out of work. And that's that's not their direct intention, exactly, but not far from it. It's to automate processes, it's to improve flow of uh, production work, it's to deploy the best science, and I constantly uh, think in those terms, why can't such and such be automated? Right now it's backbreaking work of poor people, and you think, why couldn't a machine do that? And the answer is a machine can do that, But if you just do that, the consequences are not very simple because the idea that somehow it all comes out uh, in the wash with everybody benefiting is false. There is no balanced growth in this way. And in particular, the main point of the last 60 years in the U.S. and in other high-income countries is that low-skilled, repetitive, physical work was replaced by smarter and smarter machines. And if you were in that cohort of being replaced and you were unable or uh, for some reason not able to adjust by going back to school or job retraining or other means, your labor market power diminished. And this has been going on for decades in fact. It hasn't quite been recognized for decades. In fact, it was only when the financial crisis hit in 2008, people started going back to look at when did wages stop rising in the United States. And wages for high school workers stopped rising around 1970 in real terms. That's shocking because the economy continued to grow enormously. But if you were a high school or less than high school worker, your income did not continue to grow. So we now see at a macro level that the idea of a stable labor share of value, which was one of Caldor's stylized facts of modern growth, is no longer holding. And it hasn't been holding for 20 years in a very visible way. There's a famous curve of labor productivity continuing to go up, but the wage levels off. And that's the same thing as saying mechanically, the same thing as saying that the labor share of income starts to decline when the divergence between the average productivity and the real wage show up. And that really started around 1990. But for high school workers, it started around 1970, not for other workers. So the first thing to notice is that the national income is now going more and more to business capital, which is constituted by a variety of physical assets and a variety of intangible assets. But the most important of those intangible assets is intellectual property. And intellectual property is only a piece of... Uh, it's, the, the, it's the monetized part uh, not the freely available knowledge increase, but the monetizable part of the advances of technology. And this is an estimate, simply a uh, perpetual inventory method estimate of the stock of intellectual capital that the U.S. government maintains. It's not really a, a deep economic creation, but it shows that the stock of intellectual capital has risen very significantly since those early years. So this I find to be interesting and important. If you look at the average share of labor income, it's pretty stable until slight decline and then a more significant faster decline uh, since the 1990s. If you disaggregate by sectors of the economy, the goods-producing sector which is agriculture, mining, manufacturing, and construction, has been in a steep decline of labor share of income for the last 50 years. And that's this graph. It's only, the data here are only from 1987, so it's only 30 years shown in the data, but the labor share has gone from about 0.62 to about 0.47 in manufacturing and uh, and other goods producing parts of the economy. That's a very big shift. That's the, by the way, the margin of vote of Trump, supposedly uh, getting the working class, white, disaffected factory workers in the American Midwest. And they are disaffected. Of course, Trump will do nothing for them at all, uh, except create more pain. But that's where the the vote came from and where the populism came from. And the point that Trump won on was to say, your pain came from Mexicans, Muslims, uh, Chinese. So I'm gonna take care of America's place in the world. Of course, this is not at all what happened. But the ease with which uh, a demagogue like this can convince someone that it's someone else that's done it, rather than a deeper trend in technology and the economy, is horrifying and impressive. Even when the guy is patently an idiot and patently psychologically unstable. (laughs) And it's not a joke, he's nuts. And it's not even funny, believe me, it's very dangerous for us. He is absolutely dangerous because he is absolutely a malignant narcissist. And he is president of the United States, and it's terrifying. But it is not because of Mexicans and Chinese, and he's not bringing back manufacturing jobs and all the blah, 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 because those jobs went the way of smart machines. And there are no jobs to return, because the factories do fine. They just don't have workers in them very much. And the biggest of these is in motor vehicles, which if you have visited, uh, and my first, well my first trip to a auto factory uh, was um, almost 60 years ago, because yeah, I grew up in Detroit. So uh, we used to go to the auto plant and look at the assembly line all the time. but. When I visited a Toyota plant 15 years ago in China, in, uh, Japan, there was already almost no workforce present. And that was quite a long time ago. Uh, it was quiet, it was humming, there was no lunch break, and the robots were assembling, I thought it was a miracle at the time, every car in a row was completely different, so there were no batch runs. First was a four-door, then a two-door, then a station wagon, then a convertible, and everything seamlessly coming together, and the robot knowing that on the next one, weld here, don't weld there, and that was already 15 years ago. So, we have had assembly lines in, uh, especially in the automotive uh, sector for a long time, and look at the implication of that just in uh, the, the last 30 years. The Labor share went from 70% to about 44% of production. It's an astounding transformation, and this is what you would expect with this kind of of technology. Of course, what it has meant is that uh, earnings by education uh, have widened uh, their differentials. But there's a limit to that, and this is a very, I think, a very uh, important and not well enough understood basic fact of our economies. So, these are uh, what I call low-skill workers, but it goes all the way to some college, but not a bachelor's degree. So, that's a lot of skill, actually, and a lot of investment in education. But... In the US, the big sociological and economic divide is whether you have a bachelor's degree or not. About a third of the population has a bachelor's degree. Life has never been better. And about two-thirds of the population does not, and life is tough. And that's almost as simple as it is right now. It's the yawning gap in American society. So for low-skilled workers since 1975, there's been no change in real mean earnings of low-skilled workers. That's all the way up to some college. No change since 1975 when per capita GDP, let's uh, go back to see what... Here. 1975, per capita GDP was, say, 18,000. It was half of today. Okay? And yet a doubling of output per person did not budge the earnings for those with less than a bachelor's degree. That is not balanced growth. That is incredibly unbalanced growth. For medium, which I count basically as a bachelor's degree here, Uh, the wages went up, they widened, uh, but since around 2000 not much action, pretty much stable. And then this is uh, high with meaning masters or PhD level earnings on average. And there there's some sign that maybe there too Uh, a peak was reached, uh, but the change from the 1970s till there is huge. Okay, why do I say that there's a big puzzle here? Obviously this is a reflection of both supply and demand. The demand is shifting against low-skilled workers and it's shifting in favor of higher-skilled workers. At least I believe that to be the case until recently. Maybe it's no longer shifting in favor of BA alone in the labor market it probably still shifts in favor of uh, advanced degrees. What happens to the supply side? The supply side was that for quite a while there was of course a lagged response so the gap in earnings opened up and then more and more young people went to college in response to returns on education which were quite significant and returns on quality of life that were quite significant. You couldn't find jobs with just a high school degree or decent jobs, but you could find decent jobs with a bachelor's degree. So we had a huge increase of college going. We have had a mess of financing of college education in the United States because true to form it's heavily financed by loans rather than by taxes. So we're finding that about half the kids that enter a four-year degree never complete the four-year degree. They end up leaving before the bachelor's degree usually with fairly heavy debt. They're the biggest losers of this process uh, economically because turns out having two or three years of college in the US labor market but not a bachelor's degree is hardly better than having a high school diploma. Without the credential, and the fourth year of a bachelor's degree, your margin over a high school diploma on average is quite slight. But now you have a lot of debt that somehow you have to pay. What we don't really know is what is the real supply curve for college and uh, advanced education. Is it perfectly elastic that any healthy young person could continue to make that transition? Does it depend on innate uh, cognitive skills? Does it depend on early childhood development? Do, we don't, I don't feel we really know this very much. So we don't know whether gaps like this inherently will arbitrage by a full shift on the supply side. Uh, Is it limited, is the arbitrage only limited by the uh, very poorly functioning human capital markets with heavy student debt? Or are there increasing rents to cognitive skills that are being captured by that? If there are rents to cognitive skills, because not everyone ends up at a PhD or a master's degree, even if numerically that's a good investment, Is that the result of upbringing, nurture, early childhood development, early stimulus? Is it the result of uh, physical capacities, genes, or what? Who knows? Uh, It's fraught with uncertainty and with very insufficient analysis. I would encourage you to study it because it's a big deal. What is not the demand side of the labor market only, but what is the supply side? If the demand side is there are no more jobs for high school graduates alone, but there's ample opportunity if you want it with an advanced degree, and that's open for all and available for all, no problem. If it's not really open for all and available for all for reasons X, Y, and Z that I just described, then there are further implications, which is inequality will widen, and what should society about that increased inequality. I don't feel we know empirically even some of the basics uh, of of this. But what we do know is that a science-based economic development model substitutes for low-skilled work. And it substitutes for more and more work because it substitutes for things that machines learn how to do, and the machines are learning very fast, many skills that were not possible even a short period of time ago. Economically, it's perfectly logical and consistent, though not with the Cobb-Douglas production function, (laughs) that a technological advance can raise output and lower the marginal product of labor. There's nothing mysterious about that. It's just that all the production functions we use in your homework assignments can't do that. But that does not mean that it can't happen. It's perfectly logical, and it's easy to write down technological uh, specifications in which the technological advance lowers the marginal productivity of of labor by raising the productivity of machines that are not complementary to labor but are substitutes for labor. In fact, it's easy to do so, but that's not how we normally write a CES or a Cobb-Douglas production function, and so it's not how we think, necessarily. It seems illogical or economic ignorance that leads to that, or that's uh, ludism. Uh, the luddites, uh, you don't like the machines, but that's not really the problem. But it is the problem, actually, that uh, the labor market shifts differentially. So what you have in the U.S. is, and in all the high-income countries, a shift of demand away from low-skilled work, a shift of demand towards high-educated work, and something in between for maybe a bachelor's degree right now. I'm not sure which way the, uh, the, the... Latest uh, developments are likely to take because lots of things that college-educated workers do are being substituted by machines at this point. But it's, and I'll I'll say more about that in a moment. But if you uh, combine and and then what we know is that uh, this led to some a one uh, pretty much a a significant but now stalled shift in behavior on the supply side. Where about 70% of kids go on from high school to college and about half of those end up getting a bachelor's degree and half of those are in that middle difficult uh, space and uh, those that uh, have high school without any years of college uh, is about 30% of 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 the labor force. If you combine the wage effect and the uh, stock shift of uh, educational attainment in the population, you see something like this. As late as 1975, high school graduates took home about 77% of total earnings in the economy. Almost 80% of earnings in the stock of earnings was taken home by high school grads or the way I've done it, some college and below. Now that is less than half. That's a remarkable sociological shift. And, of course, this is us, the professionals, uh, and this shift went uh, from uh, it basically doubling the share from 1975 something like 12 or 13 percent of labor earnings earned by those with a masters or higher and now it's about 25 percent uh, that uh, are uh, earning that. That's a, again a very sizable demographic uh, shift in in a 40-year period. In terms of the biggest aggregates uh, of, uh, of the economy. Um, rough, very rough uh, idea uh, is that raw labor or relatively uh, physical labor probably constituted something like 60% of national income back in uh, 1900. Business capital maybe a third uh, and uh, human capital, a small wedge because there were very few professionals. Remember only four, only about five percent of the workforce. By 2017, the graph looks something like this. Business capital, a s- somewhat bigger slice of the pie, uh, low-skill labor, much smaller proportion, and human capital, in uh, expanded proportion. 2050, my guess something like this that human capital will shrink and the returns will go increasingly to know how embodied in machines and in software. And probably the next step of the automation transformation is likely to be, in my guess, in. Uh, in uh, wholesale and especially retail trade. So retail trade is a very large sector of employment. There are shops everywhere but e-commerce is uh, absolutely viable. You don't really need shops if you can manage logistics uh, directly from an Amazon warehouse to a home. You get your goods uh, faster. Uh, It uh, doesn't seem to change too much on the net transport of anything but it's a lot more convenient and it's a lot more economical from the point of view of labor. Uh, You can basically automate a vast amount of the labor through e-commerce. So my guess is that while the goods producing sector was the first swath to feel a massive uh, leftward shift of the labor demand schedule, the service sector, starting with wholesale and retail trade, will feel a very large amount of that then they're coming for us that's the next step after that and by that I mean the machine learned sophisticated pattern recognition natural language skills uh, and other uh, other uh, uh, capabilities uh, machine capabilities on the way I think we'll do two big things to this professional sector at the start and then maybe three. First, in healthcare, there are large areas of healthcare and radiology would be the first one. I would not advise going into radiology. I would advise owning the software that will be the radiologist because it will be possible to read images better through machine-learned systems, as long as there's enough uh, big data for reinforcement learning to get these systems working to establish, uh, basically, uh, almost uh, automatic radiology. This will be wonderful, by the way, when it happens because most of the world does not have radiologists anywhere close by and soon, everyone will have a radiologist on a phone and not only calling a machine, it'll be on the machine itself. And the machine will have a little attachment and you'll do uh, retinal scans or you'll do sonograms or you'll do other things uh, that will be very low cost, hardware as well as the very high skills that will come with that. Watson, the IBM natural language system, the uh, Jeopardy winner, is of course, as you know, Uh, specialize now in medical diagnostics. And what doctors need to do is highly sophisticated, trained, Bayesian reasoning with rapid updating based on a scientific literature that almost no doctors can keep on top of. But Watson can do precisely that. Differential diagnosis, which is the great clinical skill, is precisely a learnable skill, a a, a hardcore machine learned possibility. And so I'm quite optimistic that a lot of diagnostics uh, will be able to be uh, automated the same way. When it comes to us as faculty, what can uh, one say? First, most, many of us put our course online it can be seen anywhere uh, anytime and that's probably more fun than watching a talk- talking head all the time though it's nice to drop in with students and I used to do that once in a while uh, but um, the capacity of us to put information out that used to lecture to thirty people this is really going to change you're still lucky I'd love to be in your position to learn from peers to enjoy to interact but for the tens of millions of people around the world that want an education it's going to be delivered in fundamentally different ways in the future because it already is the apparently the number of times I don't remember whether it was hundred, tens, or hundreds of millions of times that uh, instructions are looked at online right now of how to do something uh, per day, Uh, one of the Google uh, experts was regaling me with the facts, uh, is astounding. So the way we learn, the way that information is conveyed uh, will mean that teaching is very different. And I am absolutely serious that I think that the capacity to Uh, mobilize information so really using big data for economic insights which we haven't really started maybe we have and I'm just way behind the times but I don't think we have effectively uh, been able to uh, mobilize this yes yet especially for journal research and so forth I think will change the profession very markedly and again be able to do a lot of things that, uh, before, required years of apprenticeship and, uh, uh, and uh, big libraries, of course, which are now uh, available anywhere, anytime. And so, my guess in this picture is that human capital is not necessarily favored. And there's no reason to believe that the higher skilled always wins the race with the machine.
0: Okay. So, Jeff, what does one say- Yeah. I don't want to hurry you, but um, I want to make sure that you leave a few minutes for questions and answers at the end.
1: Okay. What can we say about the consequences of all of that? What is the logic of this? I've already made the basic point. The logic is that the pie gets bigger as you- uh, I, maybe I should have made a growing pie to make that clear- But it gets sliced in a very different, and I will in the next PowerPoint, uh, it gets sliced in a very different way. And so there's nothing that guarantees that the income distribution remains basically unchanged. In fact, quite the contrary. We should expect systematic changes of the income distribution. So I've been studying this in some baby models, which is a good way to... uh, test one's intuition and I'll give you one simple version of this model and that is you have overlapping generations and young people sell labor and old people and they consume and invest some of that in capital and the capital is of a kind that it can be either complementary to labor like in a Cobb-Douglas production function or it can be a substitute for labor And it's pretty easy to write down a production function in which either of those is a possibility. And then in that overlapping generations framework, I ask a question. Suppose that in a given period, the kind of capital that's substitutable for labor improves the technological uh, capacity. So a parameter rises that measures the productivity of the robots. Who wins, who loses? the basic answer is the following young people have only labor to sell so i'm putting aside human capital for the moment i'm just talking about raw labor that labor has a diminished marginal productivity and so the wage in equilibrium goes down maybe no unemployment but just a lower lower wage the old people at the moment that the older people at the moment that uh, all these good things occur see a rise of the value of their capital assets. They save from before, the stock market booms in effect. Like Donald Trump said, as if the world could care when he stood at the podium of the General Assembly's first words are, things are great in the United States, the stock market is booming. The man is nuts by the way, sorry to (laughs) digress, but he really is crazy. But the stock market is booming. Who owns the stock market in the United States? Older people. Not all older people, but some lucky older people. Almost no younger people. So the share of wealth owned by young people has gone down precipitously by the way. And the magnitude of wealth is, this is, we're in a boom actually and workers wages are stagnant so it's exactly the picture that one would expect from this kind of shock a shock that raises the productivity of labor substituting capital what happens over time well in a pure overlapping generations model the old people say life could not be better I think I'll fly tomorrow Mar- what is it Mar Elago. Lago this weekend and play around a round of golf. Um, and uh, there's a consumption boom. And young people are saying, What the hell is going on here? We can't find a job right now. And that's basically the first step. In a pure overlapping generations model where there's no bequests, the old people eat it all, they enjoy their wealth, and young people have their lower wages now admittedly they have a higher rate of return if they invest capital so if they're very patient they're poorer, but with better investment prospects their life could actually improve overall but if they're not so patient then they're worse off unambiguously so it depends on the parameter of pure time discount what happens in later generations well all later generations come to life with low wages that aren't worth very much. And actually the capital stock of the economy goes down because poor young workers don't save very much to create uh, the capital for the next generation. So it turns out you get this funny uh, behavior. Uh, The shock occurs here. The fourth generation The shock occurs in period five. Uh, The old of that generation have a utility bonanza. But then all future generations after that are immiserized by this positive shock. So it is when one's thinking about dystopic versus utopic visions of the robot world, Dystopia is economically, logically possible. It's not that everybody loses. Who wins are the wealth holders when the productivity goes up. Who loses are all future generations. Now, a more realistic story... Oops. Oh, I don't think I I was... I dropped a slide that I wanted to show. But a more realistic story is the following. Old people give bequests and inter vivos transfers. They help their kids. And if you're a rich family and you see that boy you need a college degree now to stay ahead and your wage has gone down, then if you include the, in your well-being, the well-being of your children, then you make a transfer and you compensate and it's logically possible to make both the old generation and the young generation better off because it's an expansion of the pie. So the old can have a larger pie and give the access to the young, and even though their wages are less, taking into account the transfers they receive from their parents, they're better off. And it's possible to write logically, an equilibrium in which because of uh, intergenerational altruism from parents to children, specified in some way, the shock comes, the old have a bonanza of the stock market, and they use that either to pay for their kid's college or to give them a cash transfer to compensate for the lower wages, and if that's done every generation, then that whole family in in future history is better off. A poor family that doesn't have those assets can't do that. So if the poor is almost bereft of assets or if uh, bequests are a superior good in the utility function that you only do it above a certain threshold of welfare, then not only do the old benefit in the rich families, but all the children benefit in the future as well. Whereas the old of the poor may benefit a tiny bit, They don't own very much stock, but they may own a little bit. But their children are hurt. And so you get a widening of income inequality as well as an intergenerational shift. That seems to me to be what's happening. And the response to that should be public policy that says we've had a windfall. That windfall is a permanent shock. We should now be transferring income from wealth to those who have lost to make sure that this is a broad Pareto improvement especially because it's intergenerational so instead of social security from young to old there should be a reverse social security from old wealth holders to the young generation sometimes it's called basic income it's the same kind of idea I'm not so much in favor of just handing cash to anybody so on the philosophical and ideological debate, should that be a work benefit or a cash benefit? I'm for a work benefit. So that's a, a basic point. But also recognizing that the amount that we'll be working should be shrinking. So I'm really in favor of legislating vacation time, legislating parental leave, legislating all the good things that should come from living in a wealthy society and it should not just depend on one's take-home pay in a society that is wealthy enough to make sure that these gains are broadly distributed. So in order for all society to benefit from this continuing advance of technology we need to tax capital owners and redistribute the earnings to the young and the poor and there are many ways to do that it could be through free tuition it could be tax credits like we have in the United States, the Earned Income Tax Credit, to boost the take-home pay of low-wage workers. This is the best single policy we have. Without such transfers, income inequality will rise and large parts of society are likely to be miserized. Then there are other issues that I think are more difficult and that I, A, don't know the answer to, and B, fortunately don't have time to discuss. Uh, So uh, one of those is all of the industrial organization of knowledge and big data in particular. This is outside of the scope of what I talked about, but it seems that there are sharply increasing returns to being a data portal because you get to spy on everybody. And uh, a lot of big data is knowing what I buy, where I buy it, where I shop, where my phone tells Google that I am during the day. They seem to be making a lot of money on that information. They never ask me except when I click I agree. I don't know what I agreed to but (laughs) apparently it was to give away all my personal information and all my privacy to Google, Apple, Amazon, um, uh, Microsoft and, and the rest. So and those com- companies are worth a fortune. They also evade taxes, so I don't like that. Uh, also, they've all cheated, in my view, on how to hide their taxes in Ireland or uh, in, uh, in the Caribbean or some, some, other, some other place. Um, so there's lots to be said about that part of the income redistribution and about because this is actually macroeconomically not small, the valuation of these companies and the question of their data. And so I really think that this is a very serious issue. And then finally, there is a basic question, and I haven't thought it through enough, but it's very basic to everything I'm saying. What should we train for the future? So the usual view right now is train coding because that's where the money is. And indeed, this is where the college graduates and uh, uh, advanced degrees are running to right now and they're making a lot of money. It's probably not right because coding is just one of those things that machines are going to be able to do very well. Uh, So, I think that uh, machines are going to turn out to be wonderful coders and uh, are going to be able to learn uh, how to uh, assess their own deep neural networks better and to add in uh, uh, conceptualization. So, my view is actually something else intuitively and that is that we should make ourselves complementary to the machines because that's where you get gains. But I'm not sure what complementary means exactly to the machines. It's easier to say than to do if the machines are really very good at reading research papers, at collecting data, at giving lectures, at doing other things, which I suppose they'll be. So what is complementary? I'm pretty much convinced that one thing the machines won't be is humans. They may be good lookalikes. They may be good cyborgs, they may be uh, good prototypes, they may even pass the Turing test. uh, And uh, that's true. But they probably won't be human beings, despite some of the more extended theories. And if they come to develop a lot of feelings and so forth, I think we better re-engineer that quickly, actually. Uh, I really do. I I think before we go down that road and then start with new philosophy departments of how much responsibility we have to our robots, we ought to actually decide we're not going to go down that road because that is a point that we can stop. I think, not sure, but I think so. Um, But I, we'd like even our little robot vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Uh, as it beeps and goes around the house so we will get attached to these things uh, psychologically but what we really do need to do is find the ways to protect our humanity in all of this which should come naturally in some sense in a natural Aristotelian sense so I hope that the real complementarity is that there's a boom in the humanities and that there's a boom in all the things the Computers can't do and when my son decided to be a novelist uh, He told me I'll have the last job left Uh, (laughs) That wasn't his purpose. He doesn't care at all about any of this. He just wants to write books, but he's probably in a comfortable niche uh, Because he writes about human emotions very knowingly uh, And uh, very wisely and probably he's going to be able to maintain that comparative advantage Forever. Thanks.
0: And we even have 10 minutes for questions and answers. So, hands up. Please. Please.
1: Is there a mic or they should just uh, shout? Uh, yeah.
0: I'm Fernando Garcia from Environmental Development here at And I want just to ask you a question because you have been talking a lot about. Uh, development in, developing, in developed countries, but where does this leave developing countries? Because they have always, uh, like their study has, has always been to basically use cheap labor to develop. Yep. And now they're not going to be able to do that anymore. So that's my
1: question. In principle, what I said about uh, the young applies in a way uh, analogously to developing countries if the way that developing countries develop and even if the definition of developing countries is they start with low capital and accumulate capital over time this is a mess because it means the terms of trade against those countries worsens uh... uh... badly uh, in, in, in the first instance no doubt that's happening in many ways already because a lot of the jobs that were the stepping stone jobs for early industrializers are no longer jobs. There's no, uh, I mean, one of the best jobs in Southeast Asia in early industrialization was putting electronic components on motherboards. Well, now machines, of course, do all of that. Cutting and stitching was a very basic pathway for almost all rich countries at some point started with apparel as one of the stepping stones and now that is becoming uh, highly automated as well and China is committed to mass uh, robotics uh, also uh, as part of its strategy. Uh, And I don't think that it will simply mean that the jobs in China now will move to Vietnam or uh, Laos or Africa. I think these jobs are going to shrink in number. The one side that I really like of all of this is that the uh, smart information technologies are incredible empowerments of development also. So they're direct inputs to some of the most important aspects of development, tremendously reducing the investment costs of development, for example, smart technologies will enable very low-cost health care because you don't need doctors for a tremendous amount of the tasks. You need smartphones and community workers who are trained over a few months and then well-connected either to computerized expert systems or to expert system experts but who are maybe halfway around the world or in the capital cities and so forth education should be incredibly enhanced by this. If we're smart and thinking right, every school around the world should have a wonderful online library and the hardware that's needed for that is tiny in the scheme of things. And many, many places do not have qualified teachers for millions of kids. Of course, teachers are important But online is a substitute, partly, for this. So if we're thinking well, no country has to have bank branches anymore. Everything can be blockchain or can be uh, uh, M-Pesa or can be uh, an e-wallet system. You don't even need ATM machines anymore. You don't need cash anymore. So this is a tremendous saving. Uh, we ought to be able to improve governance tremendously. I hope we start with the United States. Uh, I think we probably don't need Congress anymore, for example, because the reason we had Congress is we wanted some people to get in their, on their horseback or on their uh, carriages and go to that swamp called the Potomac Uh, area and uh, live in that malaria zone and vote in the US Capitol. Now we're all online. So if we actually thought a, a bit about this, we don't want some who are online to be involved necessarily in our voting the way they were in 2016. So it's not entirely simple. But we ought to be able to change governance really fundamentally from the point of view of citizens participation. Wiki legislation is a lot better than legislation written by these congressional committees paid off by the Koch brothers uh, who do it in secret and tell us what our health care is going to be like uh, after a middle of the night session. So I think the advantages on the whole are huge, but it may be that just like the argument that you need transfers to help that generation get started are true here also. I constantly believe in a rich world how obscene it is that we can't mobilize 1% of our national income to help the poorest places in the world, period. That's true with or without these technologies. It's just unbelievable how we fight forever and ever and how we tell ourselves the story oh, aid is demeaning, it's bad, it's no good, It it does all sorts of horrible things when it actually saves lives, builds infrastructure, helps build schools, does many important things if designed properly. So there may be some aid, and what there certainly could be is uh, intellectual property that is better structured so that the poor have access to all of these critical services without having to pay for them basically. For example I'm interested and I'm trying to explore right now when I log on Columbia University I have I think it's fifty or sixty thousand electronic journals absolutely completely available to me at zero marginal cost I think all of that could be available to any person in a low-income country. Of course That's segmenting the market and then there's question how you pay for all of that and all the debates we're having about open source uh, journals. But just in a pure sense, you could take what we're doing now and if one could create a system where every student in a low-income country designated was given an account uh, for access, I doubt that there would be congestion problems and if they were, they would be pretty minor in the scheme of things so you could make the whole world of information immediately available so we need to think about this it could be that it is partly detrimental though I think it's mainly beneficial because the inputs that one needs for development that are not there are tremendously reduced in cost by this what we're going to be able to do with transport nobody's going to have the dream of one car per household anymore. It's ridiculous, what would you want with that? Uh, Anyway, uh, I'm so happy I don't own a car I can't even describe to you. So that whole idea of how transport works, it'll be one car per 10 and we'll get organized around uh, smart systems. It'll be Lyft, not Uber probably, Uh, but uh, we'll get organized around decent smart systems To make this work. And I think it'll be a huge advantage for development on balance if we can make some extra transfers that may be needed.
0: Uh, That turned out to be time for only one question. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. by all the time.
1: uh, Long answers.
0: Let's let's thank you very much, uh, Jeff Sachs, for this fantastic discussion. Thank you.